We want engagement. We want people to know more about this. We want people to be aware of the reasons why it's important. We want people to be excited about it. We want people to come with us on the journey. Welcome to this week's show. This week is uh, about a quest for a sustainable planet. And my guest is uh, Gerard Barron, the CEO and chairman of the board of Deep Green. Welcome, Gerard. Hi, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. How's your how's your jet lag doing? I know you flew in from overseas just yeah, last night. Yeah, you know, jet lag is um, it's all in the mind. I decided. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, you kind of psych it out, huh? Yeah, yeah. Just keep moving. Keep moving. You teach me how to do that, please. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thanks for coming in, and uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, I, I'm very excited about this this episode. Uh, I've had, you know, the great pleasure to meet and work with you this past year on on what you do. But before we get to that, tell me about yourself. I mean, this is really for our listeners. I know some of this, but mm. where are you from? Sure. Uh, just give me the give me the cliff notes of Gerard Barron. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a very proud Aussie. You're Aussie yep. Yeah, I was born in Australia on a dairy farm uh, in Queensland. And so I um, went to a small little public school and uh, went to the local university and, and um, I've always been an entrepreneur, so I started my first company when I was at university, and um, and I've kind of been on an entrepreneurial quest ever since. And I've been very fortunate to have um, built a few companies around the world, and uh, which have been successful. And but you know, it's all culminated in what I'm doing today, and this is what I'm really you know that that idea of being an entrepreneur that 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 is a profession these days, mm-hmm. yeah. and it sort of really got got uh, encouraged and defined and highlighted, I believe, I, I would say in like Silicon Valley tech sure. companies kind of made it a real thing to be. I mm-hmm. mean, in the old days, an entrepreneur was somebody who went on the sidewalk and, you know, yeah. sold shoes that yeah. day because people needed shoes. But it became a term for innovative thinkers, people mm-hmm. that were able to see beyond the ordinary and uh, into the future. Yeah. And uh, I have heard you say that it's hard to be able to see the future uh, <laughs> because not everybody does see it at the same at the same time. Yeah, and the fact that you started early in your life working in, it was there was a, those were tech companies that you started yeah. uh, early when you were in college, very successful. And then you found this project, which is let's call it the beginning of the biggest, maybe most important work of your life, without doubt. Because now you're basically looking at a global problem, sustainability. You know, the fact that the fate of humanity and the fate of the Earth are the same, and the ocean is the primary driver of everything on the earth. So I like to interchange ocean and earth are really synonymous in my mind. Yeah. And we have a population that's now everywhere. We've grown you know, exponentially and we've got needs. Mm-hmm. And your company, uh, Deep Green, is poised to satisfy this, this population, this civilization really, it's really a whole civilization, with some of its primary needs for the next hundreds of years. Mm. So tell us tell us about what you're about in Deep Green and what, what you do. I heard you say in your opening, uh, we, we're on a quest for a more sustainable sustainable planet. And that's that's one of the real things that's driving Deep Green and, and what's behind the company. And um, for me, it's about environment. It's about the planet. It's not about the oceans. It's not about land. It's about the planet. And I, I often see uh, interest groups get very specific about one or the other. But of course, the planet is the planet, right? It's the top of the pole to the bottom of the pole and everything in between. And of course, um, I guess what I have focused on and Deep Green is very focused on is how we can build a more sustainable planet. And I think my big mission is, is how can we help move the world away from fossil fuels? And so when you dive into that question, um, we all agree that climate change is a real issue and that if we continue on the trajectory that we are on now, that the planet for our future generations is not going to be a very habitable place. And so we see quests to go and build civilization on planets outside of Earth. And, and that's one answer. Um, <laughs> it's not my answer. My answer is um, we have to, to do things now. We all have a responsibility. And one of the biggest issues that I see is 
is the carbon pollution that we generate every year. And fossil fuels are the major culprit there. They generate more than 35 billion tons of carbon pollution. And of course, uh, the answer to that is, is moving away from using fossil fuels. And so what does that mean? It means driving electric vehicles. It means using renewable energy. It means making sure that we can store that energy. And so that's a, that's a good idea. But you need to dive a bit deeper than that. You need to dive into what's behind, uh, what's the enabler to do those things. And of course, what's the enabler is metals. So we need to find a more uh, sustainable supply of metals that are going to enable this transition away from fossil fuels. And so, you know, how do metals enable this transition to fossil fuels for our listeners? For a lot of people, it's going to go like, what? What do you do with metals? How do you make fuel? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And and so um, we see lots of electric vehicles Mm -hmm. on the road today. And of course, they don't have a combustion engine. They have a battery. And a battery is made up of metals, nickel primarily, uh, cobalt and manganese. And of course, um, uh, as we see the uptake of electric vehicles, that's going to put an enormous demand pressure on the supply of those. And so um, I've seen some really scary examples uh, where we're actually burning more fossil fuels in an effort to keep up the energy demands of electric vehicles. And so no better example than China. You know, China is um, burning more- That's crazy. Burning more coal now. They've got also the biggest uptake of electric vehicles, of course. What a false uh, sense of accomplishment that is. You don't see an exhaust Mm. coming out of the car, Mm. but you've got the exhaust coming out of the coal-fired plant in the background that's charging the car up, right? That's right, exactly. So it's a big vision around building an ecosystem. It's about making sure that we can um, secure a, a sustainable, affordable supply of important metals to be able to supply the metals to build the electric vehicles, to build the power stations, to build the storage batteries that we can store the renewable energy, but without destroying the planet as we know it today. Because today we take all of our metals from 30% of the planet that is land. And of course, we've gone to all of the really obvious places to secure these metals. We've gone to generally out of reach places that is out of sight, out of mind. But if we think about what the future demand curve looks like for base metals, for nickel and for cobalt and copper, much of the reserves of of those metals sit in equatorial rainforests because of how they form. They form through a leaching process. They're called nickel laterites. And so To me, it just made no sense that if we're going to tear down our rainforests to get access to the metals that we require to build the electric vehicles, that's a false economy. And thankfully, Mother Nature built or or produced a very abundant supply of these metals that we need, and they happen to sit on the bottom of the ocean. That's the quest that Deep Green is about, is opening up this new industry and taking a very responsible approach to how we can safely collect these metals uh, and make them available for society. And I actually, I have one in my hand here. Yeah, I mean, I knew them from graduate school. We used to call them manganese nodules because mm. they're mostly manganese, but their better term is polymetallic nodules, which means you know multiple metals. Yeah. And a nodule, I guess, is this. I've never, mm. never used the word nodule except in this case. You know, being an oceanographer, we always, we studied these. I've looked at them through the portholes of submarines and they've always been a, oddity to us. We've known that they contain things that we could use, mm. but we never knew when the day would come when uh, the economics and the demand curves would would provide the, the, the eco, like your term, ecosystem, the environment, the ecosystem, the business conditions, let's say, mm. to actually go the four kilometers down to the bottom of the ocean to pick these things up, yeah. bring them to the surface and process them. Yeah. And that day has arrived. That's what your company, Deep Green, does. If you look at the history of the Earth, uh, as we developed from that storied, proverbial tribe in Africa some 200,000 years ago, there was evidently a thousand of us somewhere, some place, and we started to think and talk and cooperate and Mm. develop technology and and we're actually no different today, you know, than we were back 200,000 years ago. If, you, we, if we could go back in time and grab somebody and bring them here and educate them and feed them, they would be just like you and I. Mm-hmm. 
But it took a long time for us to populate the planet and start to fiddle with things. And we learned about fire, we learned about materials, and then we started to find things in the earth that we could use. And I find the history of metallurgy fascinating. There was probably like a campfire one day somewhere, and there was probably a deposit of iron or something near mm -hmm. the fire. And some caveman probably said, wow, look at that. That, that <laughs> material is melting and reforming. And ah, <laughs> oh, if, I, if I play with that, I can do something with it. So mm. we've gone through materials, wood, uh, is, is a really good example, but we found replacements for that. We don't have to use wood everywhere. We've developed concrete out of sand. Then we went into the energy sector where we started to find these fossil fuels. And they really are fossils. They're remnants of animals that lived millions of years ago, and the carbon in their bodies has been translated into oil and gas and coal. So they're really fossils of living organisms. Burned that, found out the problems associated with releasing that, re-releasing the carbon into the atmosphere. Mm. And now we've found out these metals, the ones that you mentioned, are particularly good at generating electricity and storing it. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be the last set of materials on the planet that we don't have an alternative for. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Metals are everywhere in the ocean waters, right? And so I think that uh, it was obvious for man to go to terrestrial deposits to look for the supplies of these metals because that's what they always did and you know you can see them and you can't necessarily see the metals in the ocean water but the precipitation process that allows these nodules to form has been happening for many millions of years and in fact the one you hold in your hand is probably about 10 million years old we would estimate and it grows. And for those people that aren't watching the video, I'll just describe it. It's the size of a potato. It's kind of light. Feels like I'm holding volcanic rock of some type with fingertip-sized bumps all over it. It's quite extraordinary. You don't see these anywhere else. Do you, can you describe how they're formed over those millions of years? You have to have a specific um, breeding ground, and, and pressure is what you're looking for. So that's why you mentioned 4,000 meters. Uh, the pressure down there is, is very high. And they literally grow through a precipitation process, a little bit like a pearl grows. So they start around something. The, the kernel might be a grain of sand, or they've been found with, with shark's teeth inside. And around that, the precipitation begins. And so you'll find them of different sizes. They don't get much bigger than that. Um, but the amazing thing about them, of course, is that they are composed entirely of metal material, plus a tiny bit of silica. Uh, but why that's very important is because when it comes time to collecting them and processing them, we generate zero tailings and zero waste from that nodule. So every single part of this we're able to use. And that's amazing. That has never ever been a situation that we've we've had the advantage of previously because, you know, the mining industry today uh, has the opposite problem. You know, the the obvious mines were first discovered and and exploited. And so now they're having to go deeper, they're having to go wider, and the grades on terrestrial mining are really declining. And in fact, um, you know, generally it means that you have to move an enormous amount of dirt to find a lesser amount of valuable material. And um, I think the world's biggest copper mine is, is in Chile. And you know, the, the grades that they're approaching there now are like 0.6 of 1%. And so it means you've got to dig up a thousand kilograms of dirt and you're looking for six kilograms of that is, is usable material. Uh, as opposed to these, made by Mother Nature and doesn't form through anything volcanogenic, it all forms through a precipitation process. And, and if we have a thousand kilograms of these, we have a thousand kilograms of materials that we're able to use in society. And, and so, you know, I, always talk about this resource and, and our mission as Deep Green, that we're very focused on ridding the world of fossil fuels, that think of it as a transitional resource, you know, that we're transitioning away from that economy where we were dependent on fossil fuels to a, a, an, an economy where we're using electric vehicles, when we're using um, renewable energy. And our desire is that we're moving from a consumption model to a recycling model because at the moment we mine, we manufacture, we consume and we dump. Uh, and that's not sustainable. We need to stop taking from the planet. 
we need to manufacture, consume, and recycle. Yeah, that's the neat thing about this, this material. This material is truly reusable. It's not it just is. recyclable, it's reusable. Yeah. The atomic, the properties of these metals that make them attractive are the uh, electronic properties of the atom itself. Mm -hmm. it's like, I like to think of it like a rubber band. You can like pull a rubber band, mm -hmm. you, you store energy in it, you let the rubber band go, you can capture that energy. Yeah. And that's kind of how a battery works if you want to put it in extremely simple terms. You move electronic qualities of the metal to opposing ends of the battery, then they're drawn back to each other and you get a current. But it doesn't use the metal up. No. It's like the metal comes out of that once it gets stretched and, and released, it comes out of it perfectly mm -hmm. again. Like, so mm -hmm. you just reuse it again and again and again. That's right. Unlike fossil fuels where you burn them and you've combusted them and you have to wait another, you know, 100 million or more years for that to, to reform. These metals uh, are truly reusable mm -hmm. uh, and recyclable. Now, you've said a couple things there that are very important. I kind of want to emphasize them. As we do this transition from non-renewable energy fossil fuels to renewable energy and renewable energy, things like wind, ocean currents, sun, those things are not as easy to turn on and off as gasoline engine or a diesel engine. Mm. So we have to store them. Yeah. And that's where the metals come into the batteries. The metals are also very important when it comes to generating electricity uh, in a windmill or some sort of a turbine. Mm. You need tons of this stuff. Like mm. I believe, I think I read that you need 15 tons of manganese or something like that for a big wind turbine. That's a lot of metal. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Not um, even a big wind turbine uh, for a five megawatt. And you need, in that same wind turbine, you need five tons of nickel and five tons of copper. Okay. And so that's just the beginning. Then, then you need the storage battery because, you know, to make renewable energy truly a solution, then you need to be able to find a way of storing the energy when people don't need it so much so you can make it available when people do need it. And that's called a battery today. Exactly. And I think it's really important for people to understand the scale here. We're not talking about some niche industry. This no. is like central to the further industrialization of the, of the planet and civilization. And industrialization has gotten kind of a bad twinge to it mm. because we've had bad experiences is how we've done it in the past. Yeah. Past industrializations have had a lot of unintended consequences that have been bad for people and bad for the planet. Mm. We're now in what is sometimes called the fourth industrial revolution, mm -hmm. which is the age of big data, the age of technology, the age of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And this, these metals are as important to the fourth industrial revolution as coal was to the past one. And that comes to the demand side of the house. Now, what is the demand? And there's two tracks here. One track is what you see the market demanding in terms of plans for cars and things. And the other one is how much do we need to get out there to change the world? Mm. You know, and I know you don't have exact numbers, but let's talk about demand. Well, talk about change the world. Yeah. Um, I believe in what we call a closed loop economy, which is where we recycle right. and we stop extracting from the planet. And the World Bank published a report recently that said for metal recycling to be closed loop, we need 40 times the supply of metals in the system. Now, whether you believe it's 40 or 50 or 30, it's a lot. Mm. And so the question facing society is where to get that from. And Excuse me, when you say the system, that's the whole system. That's yeah. every car battery in Europe, every, every phone in Asia. I mean, every place you find these metals, we're going to need 40 times more than we currently have. And that's, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And the scary part is everyone thinks they're doing their bit by buying their electric vehicle. But, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's not. It's the tip of the iceberg. And it could actually be making the problem bigger, not, not solving the problem. And so the question society has to ask is, do we want to destroy terrestrial deposits and rainforests to go and access these metals so we can be green? Or... Do we want to go to a very large supply that Mother Nature happened to make that just sits unattached to the seafloor? And you asked about how, how big is it. It's not a niche solution. You know, last year we used around 2.2 million tons of nickel. And nickel's the real metal that we're going to need a lot of because it constitutes 80% of an of a electric vehicle battery, if we use a Tesla as an example. 80% of the battery. <coughs> metals are nickel. They're also made up of cobalt, which we know has problems, and also manganese, but, but nickel's the real one. And so they estimate that there's around 270 million tons of nickel 
in manganese deposits just in the clarion clibonin zone. Now last year we used 2.2 million tons. It's forecast that would double in the next 15 years. So 4 Can million tons. Can you translating that to something visual, like how many cars is that or how many um, Mount Washingtons is that or something, some way to think about that? Yeah, well there's about 1.2 billion cars. Yeah. So imagine that we, uh, that number grew because yeah. um, population growth and, and the industrial There's 1.2 billion cars on the planet today. Yeah, Okay. yeah. So let's assume that grew to 1.5 or 2 billion. Yeah. There's enough nickel and cobalt to be able to electrify the fleet up to four times. So totally solve the electric vehicle material supply problem. Good. So for people um, who are thinking, well, you know, if it's, if it's only a, a small part of the solution, why bother going there at all? Let's just continue to destroy, you know, land-based areas. Yes. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about a, a solution to the problem. Yeah, I want to lay out, in the very simplest terms, we're at a fork in the road here. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fork, on the one hand, says we can continue to get these essential base metals from where we have historically stumbled upon them mm -hmm. in our occupation of this planet, and they've been easy to get to. But there's, a down, there's, there's consequences to mining. Uh, you, you've laid out some high waste ratios, which always astound me. It's like, mm. you know, you, if you look at a mountain and there's a metal in it that you want, you're going to have to remove, you might have to remove 90 or 95 percent of the mountain and do something with the waste to get the part that you want. So you have a huge waste problem. You've got the disruption of agricultural systems in the area. You've got, a lot of times you'll have people living there. Sometimes indigenous communities have been there for thousands of years. You've got to move them. Mm. There's a lot of consequences to mining on land. Water. Uh, you need a lot of water. So there's the fork in the road on the one hand has traditional historical mining. Now the other way is the ocean way, let's mm. call it for the sake of this conversation. And that's what you're talking about, Deep Green's talking about, is the ocean has these metals in it. Now you hear a lot of controversy around this. You know, mm -hmm. people say, oh, no, don't, the ocean's already getting beat up enough, and yeah. you know, well, let's not go mining there. My God, people think, <laughs> now you've done it. You know? <laughs> you've overfished yeah. it, yeah. You've, yeah. You've, you've done the reefs in, now you're going to mine the ocean? Come on. <laughs> uh, well, it's not quite as simple as that. You've got to look at it in its totality, and I wonder if you could, um, let's, let's, let's just park the terrestrial mines for a second and look at the ocean. Now, what kind of mining goes on in the ocean? Should we clarify that for, for me and our audience? It'd be yeah. great because there's different kinds of activities. Sure. So, so we should think of ocean metals coming in three forms. Yep. They come in the form of nodules, which Deep Green is uh, entirely focused on. And uh, these lie unattached on the ocean floor. They come in the form of sulfides. Uh, and much of our land-based deposits are also sulfides. So they form through volcanogenic activity. Then we also have seafloor crusts. Yeah. And seafloor crusts and sulfides are attached to the core of the earth. Okay. So you've got to go down and mine those. You've got to go down with big nasty machines and break big rocks and turn them into smaller rocks and pump them to the surface. Okay. And not all seafloor assets and metals are the same. Our argument is very much that nodules is where we should be focused because inside a nodule you have everything you need to build an electric vehicle battery. We have no gold, we have no silver, we have no platinum. We just have nickel and copper and manganese and cobalt. And you know, it's beyond a coincidence that, that Mother Nature made this deposit that just happens to have everything we need to move the world away from fossil fuels. So the other resources, while they're rich in some base metals, are also rich in gold and some other other materials. Those are the sulfides, sulfides and the, yeah, exactly. the seamount crust too, I believe, is, the, is, That's right. is a related cousin of this. Uh, I mean, I like to think about it as, I mean, uh, there's more mountains in the ocean than there are on land. Most people don't know that. And these, mm. a lot of these mountains have cobalt crusts, which are also a remnant of uh, volcanism. That's right. And probably some other processes, I'm not sure. But there's the cobalt crust, then there's the sulfide vent activity, and they're, they're closely mm. related. And those really are ocean analogs of mining. Yeah. You, you've, you're creating waste, you're chewing, grinding things up, you're making a mess, and it's, mm. it's, a, it's a different kind of a, of a business. And I guess I just want to make it clear that what you're doing is different. Mm. These are not attached. It's like picking up rocks on the bottom of the ocean. You don't even have to dig down. They, no. they occur right on the surface down yeah, there. So exactly. you're basically picking them up. So it's, physically, it's not a very destructive form of collection. That begins to differentiate it from land. Because in my mind, Gerard, this is about land-ocean. It's mm -hmm. like, in a perfect world, 
if I could snap my fingers and have these metals appear for the battery, that's, that's, the, that's the source that I would choose. But I'm a realist. And you know, we have a term here in America called cowboy up, you know, mm. <laughs> which means you can't sit around thinking about stuff. You have to take the information you have before you. And civilization is not stopping. The electric car companies are not stopping. Mm. The atmosphere is continuing to warm. We don't have years to sit around and think too much. We have to take the information we have at hand and we have to take action. Yeah. So for the moment, say, okay, we've got the downside of, of land mining, we know. Now let's look at the ocean. This nodule solution, it seems like a great one to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it uh, doesn't have the physical destruction yep. that you have on land. But the other point of it is, don't you have more than one source in one place? And that's that economy of mines is, if you talk about that for a minute. Mm. Sure. So because um, the metals in our ocean waters are varied, and metals come into the ocean water through two main forms. One is um, it, it, the gases that are forced up through the, the floor of the ocean, which emit metals into the circulation. And then, of course, um, over millennia, the erosion of, of uh, land-based assets, and in particular the Rockies and Andes, were covered in nickel and copper all those millions of years ago. And so you have this uh, a multitude of metals. In fact, everything on the periodic table is in the ocean waters. And so, so the amazing thing about um, these nodules, of course, is that when we break them up and separate them, then essentially, because of the, the, the very high abundance of metal materials, it's, it's the efficiency is like having three tier one assets, but all located in one. So it means that you, know, you don't have to go and build a copper plant and a processing plant. You don't have to go and build a, a nickel mine and a nickel processing plant, and the same with manganese. You get to do it once. And out of that one operation, after we've collected and moved the nodules to shore and processed them, uh, the efficiency is is never been experienced before in the metal space. That's a good way to put it. It's never been experienced before. I think that's why a lot of people have a hard time understanding it because it's it, it almost sounds too good to be true. Mm. You know, if you think about that mountain I mentioned earlier, where we on land you'll get five percent of it useful, ninety-five percent of it is waste, some of it toxic actually. Now we're talking about a mountain that is a hundred percent usable and you get three sources of material so you don't have to have three separate locations you yep. get it all in one spot and that's a you just don't have it on land anywhere it doesn't occur it's, it's a it's a uniquely ocean phenomena mm -hmm. that this this forms this way it's a it it's a completely different yeah. pathway so i think that to me is is the choice that we're looking at is this fork in the road land ocean now the other thing you mentioned it earlier you said uh, 30 percent of the earth is land which is where we've traditionally been getting our, our materials mm. for everything because we're terrestrial creatures and it's easy for us to operate on land. 70% mm. of the planet is ocean. So, you know, I've always thought, Gerard, I love the spaceship Earth metaphor. You know, we are traveling at 67,000 miles an hour right now around the sun, you and I. Yeah. We're never going to get resupplied. <laughs> <laughs> everything we've ever had is here. Everything we ever will have is here, mm. apart from occasionally a meteor entering the atmosphere. So as we manage the supplies on this increasingly crowded spaceship, it seems to me you make sense to look at the vast areas of it that have yet to be used that much, um, especially on the seafloor. I'm talking about there's a whole host of issues in the water column. I'm not ignoring fishing and coastal yep. pollution, but when you look at the seafloor, um, there's a choice there. And that I think is important to, to remember too. We're looking to the ocean. The grades are high. We get three or four mines in one. Uh, we're not blasting. We're not introducing chemicals. Um, what are we doing? What's, mm. the, what's the downside? Yeah, exactly. So I think that you raise a couple of interesting points. And one is we know not a lot about the oceans at the moment. You know, the statistics are still that we've mapped less than 10% of the ocean floor. And that's changing quickly. But uh, I think through the collaboration of science and private enterprise, we're going to fast track our understanding of what what lies on the ocean floor does it provide solutions to humanity from a from a, a health and well-being perspective or you know how can we safely go to this area and be responsible in how we collect and the potential impact that's going to have to the area we're collecting these from and so 
when I sat down and thought, well, wh what sort of an organization should Deep Green be? It's so obvious to get these metals off the ocean floor if you, if you think about all the things we've said to get to this point. So then it's about, well, what's going to make the right sort of corporation that can win the confidence of people? I, I call it social license. What's going to earn us the social license to say Deep Green's the sort of company that we should trust to go and do this? And, you know, I often talk about global public good. That, that I really want to make sure that the company we're building is focused on global public good. That, that is, you know, we have the oceans and we have environment at the forefront of every decision we make. That we're about reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We're about um, helping achieve some of the sustainable development goals that have been laid out by the United Nations, that we're, we're providing a, a platform for developing nations to participate in, in this, this system. So the type of corporation that we'd like to see established in society more and more. You know, once upon a time you had organizations and NGOs, whereas, you know, I think corporations need to behave very, very responsibly and particularly at the beginning of this new emerging industry. So, you know, from an environment perspective, we're in the middle of our environmental studies now and there's been a lot of work done on these nodules that were discovered back in the 1860s and the 1970s. To your point, it's so obvious, why hasn't it been done before? Well, it was done before. Back in the 70s, they started to collect nodules, but back then, the law of the sea was not in place. So no one had figured out who owned the oceans. And so basically, while they successfully built the technology to be able to collect and process these nodules, um, the operators couldn't secure the title, so they couldn't secure ownership. And so without that, um, everyone had to go home and do something else until such place that title was resolved. So now the, the, the law of the sea is, a, is, is part of um, society, uh, and that is the, the governing rule upon which we operate under. And, and so we're now in the middle of a, a program that that investigates the environmental impact of collecting these nodules. Of course, 4,000 meters is a long way down. It's a pretty barren um, landscape down there. It's, it's the biggest desert on the planet, of course. It just so happens to be underwater. You know, we are very confident in the progress we're making with regards to what that environmental impact will be. Um, that it'll be a very manageable uh, impact. Of course, we can't say there's no impact because we'll create a bit of uh, a, a storm down there as we collect these off the bottom, a little bit of dust. We don't think that's going to be a big issue, but we don't have those answers. And as a responsible organization, we're methodically going through that program. As an organization, we've invested very heavily with scientists and environmental management. And, um, you know, we're in the middle of that program now. Yeah, to me, when you when you look at everything that we know about terrestrial mining, and you look at everything we know about the ocean and the plans for nodule collections, do we need to know more? Yes, but do we know a lot already? Yeah, we do. We know mm -hmm. quite a bit already. It's pretty clear to me that the environmental touch is lighter on the planet overall Without to doubt. collect the nodules for the to satisfy these metal needs than digging up more mines on land. And I think that's yeah. kind of the where I start this. And then I look at, okay, we have to have the metals, unless people want to go without electric cars and without computers and phones and all that. There's sort of an a prior assumption that we need and want these. Mm. Where do we go? I would say it's this, this source. Then the question becomes, how do we optimize the collection of these? Now, optimize the collection in terms of doing it the best way with the lightest, the lightest impact. You know, the, something that has emerged, you know, if you look at the last century, Dilution used to be the solution. That was what we said about the ocean. It was so big, how could you possibly <laughs> impact it? And it was actually kind of true for a long time. But with the population numbers, mid-20th century, we started to wake up and started to see problems. Mm -hmm. you know, beaches are dirty, no fish. The environment sort of started to, to, really, to really register with us. And that's when the world woke up a bit. The UN kind of began to kick its gears into motion, and we had treaties came out to concern with biodiversity, concern with pollution. Uh, and then, as you referred to earlier, the law of the sea was sort of the constitution of the oceans, and that became the framework mm -hmm. where we would, we would manage the oceans. And there was something called the precautionary principle mm -hmm. that, that emerged out of the academic world. Yeah. And what that basically said is that if we look back at humanity's history, there's been a lot of unintended consequences of our activities. Let's learn from that. 
So as we go forward, if we're going to start something big and new, let's remember that the last time we did something big and new, things happened that we didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what the precautionary principle means. It means going forward, we're not going to be as carefree. Mm -hmm. We're going to be very careful about what we do. We're going to think about every possible outcome before we do it, especially at industrial scale. And as I've gotten experience with this issue, I've not seen the precautionary principle applied at this scale ever. I mean, the world, the whole world, literally, through mm -hmm. the UN, is convening, it's meeting, it's discussing. And how many years away is, is Deep Green from actually collecting these nodules? Our goal is we'll be shipping product in 2025. So a few more years of, yeah. of, of work and study. Yes. And, you know, I just want listeners to have confidence that mm. there is a transparent, and some people claim it's not transparent enough, maybe there could be some improvement there, I don't mm -hmm. know, but the intent is for the whole process to be transparent and, it, and participatory, it's definitely that, mm. international effort, it's not like uh, companies running off on their own in the Wild West doing things, there's no, a coherent right. system that the UN oversees, that you and Deep Green has spent a lot of time participating in if you want to. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. We, we have a team that are focused on helping make sure those regs are really robust because, you know, that's one of the interesting things about this. I have a view that this could be the most impactful project on the planet because when you dive into the data, we need to change the supply chain. So we want to build not only an organization that we're very proud of, hence the global public good. You know, it's an opportunity of of creating a company that gives back to society, not just develops the asset and, and supplies metals. So we want a, a high level of, of regulations and controls because while we're very confident of how we will behave, we want to make sure that everyone is held to the same high standards. And so we've actually contributed to, to making those environmental standards even more robust. Now you have to, f there's a balance. And the balance is to make sure that the regulations are manageable to enable companies to safely invest and move this forward. And, and as you say, the precautionary principle means that, you know, when we anticipate we will be granted a, a license to collect, we have a license to explore at the moment, but when that moves to actual more of a production license, we don't expect it'll be like, see you in 30 years, pal. You know, we expect the world's going to be focused on this every day. We'll have satellites looking at everything we're doing. And I say bring that on. We, we want to operate to a very, very high standard. And we want everyone else to as well. Because this is about providing a solution, not creating a bigger problem. And, uh, you know, being a little bit selfish for a moment, you know, I want my grandkids to look back and think this was a really great thing. Are you doing this for your children? <laughs> I'm doing it for the planet <laughs> for and the for planet everyone's children. And everybody's yeah. children. Yeah. You've got good values. You know, I once heard it said that you can determine the values of a society by the skyline of its cities. <laughs> and by, you interpret that by you go back in time. And if you go back to thousands of years ago, you'd have a castle would mm. be the biggest building in the, on the skyline. And that means that military hereditary values and power were most respected. Mm. Then you start to see churches mm -hmm. dominate, and that means that the religion was the dominating value system on yeah. the planet. And what are the biggest buildings today when you look at any skyline in a city? They're financial centers, yeah. right? And what I hear and what I've actually witnessed over the last 40, 50 years is a reemergence and a resetting of a value system where, yes, we want to make money. Yes, we want everyone to have a comfortable lifestyle and, mm. and, and live the way we see on TV and all that. But there's also values that have to be maintained in terms of how we live and why we live on this planet. And, and just extending that thought, yeah, we want to, we want to live a, a comfortable standard of living, which means uh, you know, having things like healthy drinking water, clean air like having an environment around us. And this is where it's harder to find answers to some of the questions like, why, why should we have it, but not everyone else have it? And of course, we have a developing world there that is saying the same thing. They're going, we'd like to have infrastructure. We'd like to have roads and electricity. And we'd like to have some of the things that we see. They don't even see it on television because they don't have television. And I think 
as a society, it's very easy to turn a blind eye to that. Uh, and it's very easy to say, oh, no, we don't need to see the economic development of these. Uh, a sustainable supply of affordable metals is not important. Well, try telling that to an impoverished family who'd actually like to get some electricity working, but because of the very high cost of these materials, they can't. And so I think as a society, we need to look a little bit more closely at our own Or they'd like systems. to have a CT scanner that works within 500 miles of their house. Exactly. Or some medical supplies or, yeah. or, or anything like that. Because uh, one of the problems is with demand ballooning and supply constrained, then prices are going to go a lot higher. And that means that the prices we pay for these materials and electric vehicle batteries will be a lot higher. And it means that the affordability of them will prevent them from being affordable for the developing world. Unless you satisfy that supply. Unless we can find demand, a supply yeah. which is what to enable the, the broader adoption of these technologies. And this is a game-changing way to do that. That's right. Really, isn't it? It is. You're an entrepreneur, you're a successful businessman, and you understand that world quite well. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you are partnering with, with the world to pull this off? We're a private company. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we look to shareholders to provide capital, um, myself being one of them. And, you know, we have, to, we have to, to sing for our supper, so to speak, which means that we have to get the balance right between commercial endeavor and this corporate responsibility, creating a global public good company. And so, um, so our strategy was very much through collaboration because, yes, I want to build a really valuable company for the benefit of my shareholders. Otherwise, I won't get the capital to do it, okay? So that we have to accept that. But, you know, am I sat here motivated by money and greed? Absolutely not. You know, I'm motivated by the mission of finding an alternative supply of these metals to move the world away from fossil fuels. It's as simple as that. But to do that, I've got to satisfy the needs of shareholders and capital providers. And so one of the things about the mining industry is it's dominated by big, big organizations. And it operates in somewhat of a boom and bust cycle. Prices go up. And when prices go up, supply comes on. So it means that there's an oversupply. And so all of a sudden, there's too much, so prices go down. And so you find the mining companies close plants, and so prices go up again. So it's a real, it's a what, fascinating thing to watch. What's the percent swing in those things? Can you, can you give me an, an sure, example? Sure, it can be hundreds of percent. Really? You know? okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was Over only back in the early 2000s that the price of copper was 40 cents a pound, and less than seven years later, it was 10 times that. You know, wow. and so, okay. and it's now settled at about um, somewhere in the middle. And so what I, I, I saw in building Deep Green is we cannot be uh, beholden to those big mining companies. And so what I saw was an opportunity of, of getting this new industry started by collaborating with other people in the industry. And so these are 4,000 meters underwater. Obviously, a lot of the world's oil and gas comes from offshore. Uh, I'm in the business of, of saying that doesn't have a bright future. So we're talking to some of those big providers, really big responsible companies to say, come and help me build collector systems that can operate for nodules. Because longer term, you're not going to need those ships out there servicing the offshore oil and gas industry. So why don't you redeploy the asset to come and play here? Mm -hmm. And so we've been very successful. We're, we're dealing with lots of those companies right now about them collaborating with us to, to repurpose some of those assets into our collector system. And the same on processing. So. Once upon a time, we would have had to go to the big mining companies to come and partner with us to build those processing plants. But now, the, the choices available to us are so much greater because, you know, if you're buying an electric vehicle today, 40% of the cost is a battery and, and the drivetrain unit around that. So you want to know that you can control that cost. And so those car companies are looking to more vertically integrate. They're looking to make sure that they can secure a supply of these important materials. So once again, we want to collaborate with them so, so we, uh, we've bitten off a, a big chunk here. Creating a new industry in the face of uh, heavy competition you know, is a big, dangerous game. And so my view was the best way to de-risk that was to get some other big heavyweights to participate, and not the heavyweights that are currently making all the money of terrestrial mining. 
more the heavyweights that have skills that can be repurposed to here, like providers in the oil and gas industry who could help us with the deep water collection, like the electric vehicle companies who are wanting to control the supply of these materials or secure the supply and then be able to control the cost of making that. And so they, they have a natural motivation to come and play with us. Are there any uh, analogs of this kind of a change? I'm just trying to think, did, like, did solar energy find its way into the traditional energy market somehow, or was it in, in technology? And it just seems like such an innovation. This is such an innovation in the metal sector. Well, I think those industries um, were seen as new commercial initiatives, and they operated and established with the, the help of enormous subsidy. You know, I don't think the motivation was necessarily save the planet. Right. It so happens that they generate renewable energy, and and you know, they provide a very important source. And, and now it's become a very big industry, of course, and it's now competitive without subsidy. So, you know, subsidy is a very important part of getting it started. We don't have that available to us. Yep. You know, we haven't attracted the sufficient attention of, of governments to make it a subsidizable project, even though the security of supply of these metals is fundamental to society. And so, you need these metals to operate. Uh, and of course, much of them come from very unstable regimes today. Yeah, God, there's so much to talk about. I, I want to cover the license part of it mm. and how, how you access the sites. And sure. we mentioned the Clarion, Clipperton, and Fracture Zone earlier, which uh -huh. is a part of the ocean seafloor on the high seas, which is that common area that everybody on the planet has access to. But you, Deep Green has two lease sites there, and could you describe that scenario just to be brief, how that works? Here? Yeah, so there's, um, so the law of the sea basically says that as a sovereign, you, um, you, you have, you own a 12-mile perimeter around your coastline, and you have an economic right to anything within 200 miles of your coastline. But beyond that, it's not yours. It's going to fall under the control of the United Nations. Uh, and the law of the sea basically says that Anything that is in that X beyond 200 mile zone will be administered by the International Seabed Authority. So it's an independent organization um, that falls under the, the, the management of the United Nations, which basically means that when we applied for a license area, uh, we applied with developing nations, because you have to be a sovereign or sponsored by a sovereign to apply. So the first licenses were granted to developed nations, nations like Korea and Japan and Germany. And they were asked to go and survey their, their plots. They were given 150,000 square kilometers. And to return half of it by value, so not the bad half, but half of it by value, which would be put into a developing nation land bank. And the idea was that the, the law of the sea was very driven by the, the common heritage of mankind. It was really about saying, these assets are not anybody's. They're, they're the assets of society, of the world. And they should only be developed for the good of mankind. The royalties that they generate should be directed towards developing nations, particularly landlocked ones. They also wanted to find a, a, a way for developing nations to participate. And so, we identified an opportunity um, to, to approach a developing nation, and, and that nation was Nauru, and they sponsor our application in the first instance. And, um, and then on the second license area, we have a, a, a partnership with Kiribati, which are a group of low-lying islands also in the Pacific Ocean. And so that was another important part for us, that it was a way of involving developing nations. It's a way of providing a massive uh, opportunity for their local economies mm. to participate. You know, the game change in innovation. I I just want to throw in there because yeah. having worked in the Pacific and worked with these countries, I I don't think anybody's. I don't think there's any examples like that. No, I can't think of any. I can't. Where think you've of got any. a private partnership with a developing country to get a piece of big global industry. Yeah. Basically, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was a fundamental part of um, our approach. And so we have sponsorship agreements with those countries. We educate children through university. Uh, we will pay them a very nice royalty when we're in business. Of course, there'll be a royalty to the ISA as well, which yep. will be distributed to developing nations. And so, but, but for those developing nations that, that we partnered with, 
it's a big opportunity for their future generations to have some, some hope. You know, it just struck me, Gerard, the, the rules of this scenario are so important for the planet long term because we really are at the place where we're trying to figure out how we live together on a small planet with some inequalities that we've inherited, <laughs> let's mm. say, from the tract of civilization over the last thousand, two thousand years, and how we try to get it right. Mm. This is really, a, we're trying to rebalance a little bit. And I would, I would argue that the, the UN, of course, was a major entity to make things work from a governance point of view on the planet. But in terms of resources and uh, metals, you know, this is really a test case. It, it's, it's more than a test case. It is the way forward, is how do we, how do we satisfy industrial demand? How do we involve nations and people that deserve to be involved, but maybe don't have the, the capital or the technology or the, or the foot in the door? Because we can't just keep repeating the, the way things have worked in the past, mm. which is the north-south divide in the world. You know, yes, let's look at the environmental impact. That's what people tend to focus on. Mm. But there's another thing going on here. Yeah. And that's getting the, the north-south divide, the haves and the have-nots kind of sorted. And this brings me to a headline topic that comes up a lot, and that's cobalt. Yeah. We know that cobalt's the news today. It may not be the news 10 years from now, but it is the news today in this yeah. industry. Can you walk me through that? What's sure. Yeah. So cobalt's one of those um, really important metals. It, it's generally a byproduct of nickel and copper. So you don't have cobalt mines per se. It, it tends to be um, a byproduct in, in those assets. But... The challenge is that it forms a, a very important part of your iPhone battery. Of course, there's not a lot of cobalt in your iPhone battery, but multiply that by a few hundred million, becomes a lot. But it's also a very important part in electric vehicle battery. It has very important elements. It has a, a very high resistance to, to, to heat. And so the world has been in shortage of it. And as a result, prices have been going up, and two-thirds of it currently comes out of the Congo. Now, there are some very responsible operators who operate in the Congo, but there's some who are not as well. And the artisanal mines in particular uh, are very challenging because they're littered with child labor. In fact, it's estimated more than 40,000 children between the ages of five and 10 are involved on a daily basis in the collection of cobalt wow. from these artisanal mines. And so, you know, it's, it's heart-wrenching when you see what's happening down there. And of course, it's not just child labor, it's, it's adult mortality as well. Of course, you know, the big mining companies report uh, deaths in mining and those numbers have shrunk to very, very low numbers. But there's another side of it, and that is the unreported um, more provincial operations, in, particularly in those Central African areas where, you know, life is not very valuable. And so, you know, and I think that's one of the, the challenges that society is addressing. It's like, how do you, how do you reconcile the, your conscience between really wanting to have the latest gadget, but wanting to not know where the materials came from to make it? And I think what I'm observing is that consumers, led by millennials, I must say, really care about this stuff. Mm. You know, if I think about my own daughters, you know, they are, they're very fussy about the products they buy. You know, they want to know where, what people's, what company's sustainability practices are. Like, like, and the thought of child labor being involved in the production of these materials is, is horrific. Mm. And, and so that's another reason why we engage brands in what we're doing, because I think in the, the medium term, consumers will support brands who have a much more responsible approach to this. And I, I think that means being able to give guarantees to their customers about where the materials came from, as opposed to say, I don't know, I bought it off that guy. <laughs> I've had the same experience, you know, I think millennials especially, but I also am fairly optimistic in my view of humanity, I think people in general want to do the right thing if they only knew what it was. <laughs> yeah. It's often how people operate and think. Yeah. And if they can feel that their purchasing decision is going to have a positive impact on some children in the Congo, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. They're going to vote with their, with their dollar. Mm. And that's kind of what's been happening in the marketplace with the environment recently and human rights to certain certification programs where you go into a store and you can 
you can be guaranteed something by something you read on a label that buying this is going to have a knock-on effect positive in a community or or for the environment yeah. and I think I think you're right I think that is that the trend line you said something earlier though you said adult mortality could you I heard you explain that yesterday a little bit more could you unpack that a little bit more about how that works in the Congo yeah well there's been um, a, a lot of investigative reporting um, Wall Street Journal came out with a nice piece recently and, and child labor is in everyone's vision right right it's, it's we get that because the kids are small that's and, right. and they can their, their size makes them ideal right to climb into holes and get the, get the material is exactly that, yeah. exactly but but the challenge with um, a lot of mining operations uh, in these developing nations is that they have unsafe practices uh, and that means that if you're the unfortunate um, uh, worker who suffers an injury even if it's not your if it's not life-ending it 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 might send you home unable to work. There's no catchment system for the family. So it's the beginning of the end. And so, you know, the adult mortality. They've got no workman's compensation. They've got no health insurance. None of that. Yeah. None of that. Yeah. None of that. And, but the adult mortality is literally, um, you know, in the many hundreds per month. In fact, there are some much more aggressive numbers wow. than that as well. Mm. And, um, and of course, they're doing what they need to do, right? They're doing what they need to do to survive. Right. And, um, right. But they're doing it to supply the, the important metals that we need to buy our new Model S, right? our new iPhone X or whatever it is. And, and you know, there just needs to be, a, there needs to be some you change. Know, I, so cobalt is something that everybody, hear about, everybody hears about, and there is cobalt in the manganese nodules, there is, yeah. or in the polymetallic nodules, and could satisfy that. And, doesn't Deep Green have a maybe not a, a codified plan yet, but you're thinking about what will happen to the people there yeah. if, if you take, go into that? Totally, yeah. 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 Well, well, I have this view that you've got to start investing in education to solve, um, to solve these systematic problems in developing nations. So how on earth do you start educating a child that at age five is being dragged out of bed to go and, and collect cobalt from an artisanal mine? Very hard, right? Um, but there are ways, there are ways. It generally comes down to money, and there's a lot of aid pouring into these nations. And, you know, what we're looking to do is to how could we partner with some of those organizations around education in those regions that will be most impacted. And so, you know, I think we have a responsibility to do that. I think as an organization, it makes us... Um, That's because if you, if you replace the supply of cobalt, these kids may, not, may, may be the breadwinners, right? That's right. For the right. family, yeah. Yes, yes. So what happens to them next? What it, happens to them next? Yeah. Now, my view on that is that this is the beginning of a systematic change that allows you to start educating those kids. And there are some amazing organizations who've been very successful at taking private education to the poor. So it's about how do we work with those groups to really target you know, the fact that... that we're not going to need those materials, firstly. So there's an opportunity of getting, getting kids who might be earning 50 cents a day to go down that mine. Let's pay them to go to school. And then let's pay their parents to leave them in school as well, because that's the beginning of the solution. Education has to be at the core of it. And so, you know, I, I, we have a number of initiatives around that. I mean, it's about how we move those ideas forward in a, um, in, in a way that's consistent with our ethos, that, that you know, we're very fortunate to have attracted a group of shareholders who believe in that as well, who want to be part of a company that thinks the way we think. And, um, you know, the first mission is, you know, get through the environmental studies and uh, get the license and, and start supplying these metals to help us. Uh, yeah, the technology solution of getting them from yeah. the bottom of the ocean to somebody's car. Mm. If you could just give us a quick rundown of how that works, because yeah, I'm sure people are wondering, how do you do that? Yeah. I, I, I once remember uh, attending an event where they were looking for investors to support a space exploration company. And, um, and I must say, I, I was invited and I, I, I thought, as I went there, I thought, this is crazy. I don't even know why I'm, I'm wasting my time. But of course, I walked out of there thinking, this is amazing, this is amazing. Of course I want to go to space. And, uh, and I think the same will happen in the deep sea yeah. because the technology, the systems we're deploying down there, you know, we're, firstly, we're designing the, the technology to have the least impact on the environment. So we're very, very conscious of that. Yeah. 
uh, and the International Seabed Authority have put aside areas that we can never touch as well, right? right? So there are preservation zones. But the technology that we're going to be playing with is, is something that people are going to get really genuinely excited about. They're going to be able to, to come and watch us do it. They're going to be able to put the AR headsets on and, and watch us collecting nodules on the bottom of the ocean. And, um, and generally how it works is we have a mothership that sits on the surface. It's a big vessel, 220 meters plus. And then we have machines that operate on the seafloor collecting these nodules. Uh, we'll have up to four machines operating at the same time. A little bit like a uh, potato harvester perhaps, okay. you know, that, that will just slowly move along the ocean floor yeah. and uh, collecting the nodules, leaving behind um, as much as we can yep. on the seafloor. And then through a closed riser system, moving those nodules and any other material to the ship. Yep. And then another ship will pull up alongside it and every couple of days and unload the nodules and ship them to shore. Okay. And so, so it's really cool. Yeah. And it's going to be something that I think, uh, will it excite people in the same way that people want to go to space and, and everyone wants to be an astronaut? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, and also- We might even see Aquaman down there. Who yeah, Aquaman. <laughs> I wonder if you could just tell me, because I don't know the whole story here and the listeners a little bit about your connection to the ocean. The ocean was always uh, exciting to me because we got to visit it once a year, you know, because okay. I grew up on a dairy farm. It was a long way from the ocean. Yeah. And um, I remember um, having to swim between the flags and, and it was always uh, instilled in us. Because of sharks or? Uh, well, because we were country people, I didn't swim so well. So oh. it was, yeah, you had to be between the flags because that's oh, where the oh, lifesavers were. I see. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. And so, um, look, but now I have a, you know, I have a great affinity to the ocean. I mean, yeah. I... I live on the river in London, you know, I have a house on the ocean in Australia, you know, and, and I spend as much time as I can around water. I, I absolutely love what it. What do you like about it? You know, I love the fact that you can just be yourself and away from the maddening noises and the, the feeling when you crawl out of that, that salt water and the cold air hits your skin and you lie down in the sand and it all gets mushed everywhere <laughs> you know i really uh and of course i have a great memory of that because i associate it with children you yeah. know because it was always about taking the kids to the beach and yeah so what about what's your favorite animal ocean animal do you have one doesn't uh, have to be your your favorite but just one of your favorites you know that's if, if you'd asked me that a year ago i would have given you a different answer okay. um, what would it have been then uh back then it would have been a blue whale okay yeah and but now it's whale sharks having dived with okay. them um off the coast of Mexico recently and just having hung out with them and a heap of manta rays for a day. Oh my God, that was just amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was very special. Whale sharks, that's the world's largest fish, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure I almost um, accidentally pushed my daughter right into the mouth of one. But, really? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but we survived. It was good. Of course, they don't have any teeth. No, that's right. Yeah, they, that's they, what I was telling you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but they do have the word shark associated with their name. Yeah. Um, we've covered a lot. Is there anything that stirred in your mind as we've discussed here that you wanted to? You know, one of the things that I come up with against a lot, ocean-loving people fearful that companies like Deep Green are going to wade into their oceans and, and cause more damage than the benefits that will be derived. And, you know, I think when you dive into the data that sits behind what we're doing, when you dive into the data that sees the impact of supplying the metals to move us away from fossil fuels, it will be such a no-brainer for people to understand why we need to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that the solution lies unattached in these nodules on the ocean floor, I need people to, to not just react to, to this and say, you know, mining, ocean, bad. You know, mm. this is actually the solution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I, I spend a lot of my time uh, being asked that by NGOs. It's like, we don't, need, we don't know enough. And you can't come at this global problem of environment and say, we don't know enough, do nothing. Because it has to be on your hands then what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, the direction that we're heading with climate change, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the human rights violations that are happening in these developing nations. You know, we can't just stand back and do nothing. We have to be proactively moving forward. And so, you know, I, I think we need, but then 
if I use the word NGOs, they, they get they get a lot of attention, right? And so they can be very squeaky wheels. And I, I, I think from our perspective, you know, we just need a platform to be able to continually communicate, you know, mm -hmm. to deal with the concerns that we as an organization have on behalf of society and to be the responsible guardians of this important new industry. And so, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting and a very important time. Um, you know, one of the things that being an entrepreneur for 30 years has taught me is resilience, you know, and we're going to stick at this. We're going to make it happen in a way that we're very proud of and society will be proud of, I believe. We want engagement. We want people to know more about this. We want people to be aware of the reasons why it's important. We want people to be excited about it. We want people to come with us on the journey. Well, thank you for your leadership in this, in this whole sector, Gerard. I can tell you, having worked on the ocean and under it my whole life, you know, we need people like you and awareness like this. And thank you for your time today. And uh, been a pleasure. It's been a yeah. great conversation. Uh, and uh, thank you, listeners. We'll see you uh, next week. Mm -hmm.